0: I invite you to take your scriptures and open to Matthew's account of the gospel, chapter 18. As Evan read through this parable, I think you noticed the comparison you were supposed to make. That's what parables do. They force a clear comparison. And it's supposed to lead you, and they do lead you to the listening ear, to the perceptive heart. They lead you to truth. They lead you to make a proper judgment. Everyone that reads that parable should come to a proper judgment. So I call this the parable of proof. Proof whether mercy has transformed your heart or not. Many of you have read... Uh, writings from Corrie ten Boom. Her family resisted the Nazis by hiding Jewish people in their home. They were eventually discovered and sent to a concentration camp themselves. Corey barely survived. Her family members died in captivity, including a sister she loved very much. What is amazing is that after Corrie survived the concentration camp, she made it to the end of the war. Her family did not. She spent much of her time in the post-war years traveling throughout Germany and elsewhere in Europe, sharing the love of God and her faith in Christ. She records one occasion in 1947 that while speaking at a church in Munich, she noticed an older man in the back wearing a gray overcoat and she noticed his facial features and recognized him as one of the most cruel and notorious prison guards. At Ravensbrück camp. She was speaking that morning on God's forgiveness. She records that at the end, she was still paralyzed. Her heart felt cold. At the end, that man came from the back of that gathering and walked forward and he extended his hand to her. And she realized he did not recognize her uh, because of the thousands of prisoners that went through Ravensbrück camp. But he extended a hand out to her, and all she could see him in was the old blue Nazi uniform with visored cap and one of the cruelest guards under which she suffered the most horrific indignities. Yet he was there, and he said this with hand extended. Thank you for your fine message. How wonderful it is to know that all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And that's exactly what Corey taught that morning. And yet here, she said, is a man I despise and that does not deserve forgiveness. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It has been hard for me to forgive myself for all the cruel things I did, but I know that God has forgiven me. And please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips too, that God has forgiven me. Corey Ten Boom records her response in her book, The Hiding Place. She wrote this. I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, and so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried. With all my heart, for a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. End quote. Love, mercy, forgiveness, peace, and joy. That's what the parable puts before us this morning. Whether it's a tormentor or abuser, a parent's favoritism of another child in your home, a spouse's criticism or unfaithfulness, a harsh parent or a friend's hurtful words and selfish actions, we all struggle at some point to forgive. So let's look at the parable. It's already been read for us, but look at verse 23, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus teaches, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to And then he tells the story. This, folks, is about who are true kingdom citizens and who are not. And just like the parable of the sower, where only one of those seeds brings forth fruit and the other are superficial, so there is a type of professor who is superficial. An unforgiving heart gives evidence of an unforgiven heart. An unforgiving heart gives evidence of an unforgiven heart. During the process, Jesus tells this story, an individual is brought who owes a debt before the king. Again, you've got this triangle and in this parable, this triangle works out. You have the king, also later called the master, and then you have the one who's forgiven a lot and then you have the other servant who was forgiven, who was not forgiven a little. Okay, that's the triangle. And this... Individual is said to owe 10,000 talents. Now, a lot of comparisons have been made to try to press this point home on how much that is worth. I think Perkins in his commentary on parables assesses the amount the best. He said this, it would have reminded a Jewish audience of the fabled riches of Egyptian and Persian kings. Not an inconceivable amount, but not within the bounds of their experience either. This is an incredible amount that this individual that is called before the king owes. Look at verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Okay, that is a common practice. The king is going to get something of worth out of this man. If anything, his anger will be abated a little bit by selling the man off. Verse 26, you're going to see this twice in this parable. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So this man's impending disaster turns to desperation where he begs for something he knows he cannot pay back. He begs for time and I will repay you. Look at verse 27. This is where mercy enters the picture. And out of pity for him, pity. Not hope that the king's going to get back what is owed to him, but pity. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The king actually gave more than the man asked. The man asked for what? Time to pay back this enormous debt. What did the king give? He gave release. The debt's gone. The king said, no conditions. This was an act of pure grace, giving to the man what he did not deserve. Now the parable turns, and we're moving through the parable quickly because we have to draw out the points that Jesus is making. The parable turns, and this is where we see the situation clearly. Look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarius is a Roman silver coin. It was the wage an ordinary laborer was paid for a day's work. Okay, he owed him a hundred of these. This is a hundred days work. There were 6,000 denarii to a talent. Okay, so the man was just forgiven. If we just do it just with, with, with numbers... 60 million denarii, and he is demanding 100 denarii. Okay, don't miss this. <laughs> okay. He has been forgiven 60 million denarii, and now he goes out and he is demanding 100 denarii. 100 days wages he is demanding when he has just been forgiven of 600,000 days wages. It's an enormous amount. Look at how he responds. Still in verse 28. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down. You've seen this before. This is the same reaction he had. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Here's the difference. The response is the same. but The fact is, this man probably could pay back what he owed. Do you get that? Remember, a parable is the setting alongside of two things. A common story with a real life fact. And so now this is making sense. Like here's a man who's actually asking for time to pay a debt he can pay. Look at verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. What is being pictured here is a superficially penitent 31 when his fellow servants saw what had taken place they were greatly distressed just as we are reading this parable and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place so these onlookers go back to the king and they say this is what just happened verse 32 then the master summoned him and said to him And listen, he's been forgiven all that debt, but he is still called wicked. Look at this. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So here's the picture. The king forgives the servant an incredible debt. The servant refuses to forgive another servant, a fellow servant, Of a small debt, so the king is taking this rank, this authority. Okay, I think many of us are seeing where this parable is going because this is about the kingdom of heaven. Should I not? Should you not have forgiven the little debt of a fellow servant when you've been forgiven by your king? Okay, is that clear? Look at verse thirty-four because the teaching is going to get very narrow and very direct. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. Some of you in your translations, it says torturers. And that's accurate. That word is only used here. Jailers or tormentors. Until he should pay all his debt. Here's the teaching. If you disregard mercy, then expect strict and exacting justice. This is what James taught. James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now in the parables, Jesus doesn't always make the application of the truth that he's teaching, but in this case he does, and it's helpful. Look at verse 35. This is the application. So also, okay, I just told you this very clear story where you can arrive at clear judgment. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Did He just say that? Well, let's let's draw some truths from this. What is forgiveness? If you were to write down a definition of forgiveness, what, what is forgiveness? Well, from this parable, we learn that forgiveness assumes an offense. Right? Something to be forgiven. Forgiveness assumes a debt. Okay, it's not merely a hurt feeling unless that hurt feeling is the result of an objective offense. So forgiveness assumes an offense. In this parable, how many people owe a debt? Okay, two different people owe a debt. This, the smaller debt, even though it's smaller, is a true debt that ought to be paid. And this wicked servant has a huge debt that he cannot pay, but it ought to be paid. Secondly, not only does forgiveness assume an offense or a debt, forgiveness is an act of compassion, an act of mercy. Look at verse 27. The king took pity on the servant. The the parable does not simply speak of forgiving debt, but of having mercy. Mercy is the attitude that guides thoughts and actions by not giving to people what they deserve, even when it is in your power and position to do so. Third, forgiveness cancels a debt. Verse 27, The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Where there is a debt, someone must pay. Either the one in debt pays it back or the one owed the debt has to pay for it himself. Somebody has to absorb the hurt, the cost, the debt, the offense. So, for example, say you asked to borrow my phone at our Coffee Connect time and, and you run out and you drop it into the water fountain out there, okay? And my otter box does not prove waterproof and you come in and it's done, Who pays for that? Well, the church does. No. (laughs) Okay, You borrowed it. It was under your care, under your responsibility. You dropped it in the water. It's now not working. I have two choices. I either make you pay for it, or what? Or I absorb the cost. And if I absorb the cost, I have released you of the debt. I'm saying I'm going to take the hurt, the penalty, the cost, and I'm going to relieve you from that. Either way, someone has to absorb the cost. When you forgive someone, you absorb the cost of the offense committed against you. You cancel the debt. God's mercy, if we just run real quick and take the parable to its intended end, which is the Gospel... God's mercy is nowhere more evident in canceling debt than on the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians makes this point. Listen to what it says in Colossians 2 verses 13 to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do that? How did he forgive us all our trespasses? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But forgiveness assumes what? An offense? Trespasses? A debt? There's something else we must understand about forgiveness, that forgiveness is an eternal matter. Forgiveness is, yes, often, and this is how we understand it, a relationally horizontal matter, but but more than that it is vertically a spiritual and eternal matter in this parable Jesus focuses our attention on the eternal right he says if 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 you don't forgive others my heavenly father will not forgive you that is a very direct very seemingly harsh statement the mercy you show to others is evidence of the mercy you have received Let me repeat this again. An unforgiving heart gives evidence of an unforgiven heart. The reason Corey ten Boom, even though there was a, a struggle present, she could finally say, I have to do this, even though it feels mechanical. And then when she obeyed the grace and the power came through, is because she had been forgiven by God. When we fail to forgive, we are active, not Passive. Even if we pull away and isolate, even if we pout and use a silent treatment, we are still very active in our withholding of mercy. When we attach expectations to forgiveness, for example, as long as you never do this again, or fine, but I'm never going to forget this, that gives evidence of an unforgiven heart. Listen to our our Lord's model prayer. Earlier in this uh, Matthew's account of the Gospel, He says this in the prayer, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. After the prayer, Jesus has this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Fifth, forgiveness is a single event and a long-term process. Note what preceded this parable, a question from Peter. Peter came up to Jesus and he said, Lord, Lord, how often will my brothers sin against me and I forgive him? And I think Peter thinks he's being generous, and he says as many as seven times. I mean, seven was an important number, and I think Peter's thinking he's being incredibly gracious as a disciple and a follower-learner. Seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or as some say, right, it's, if, if you do the math, it's 490 times. The idea here is when you learn to forgive after the single event, when you learn to forgive in a long-term continual process, you'll stop counting. You know, is that true of us? The single event is when we decide to respond with mercy. Yes, I forgive you. That's the single event. The long-term process is that every time we recall the offense or the debt or the hurt, so three weeks later, you come up and ask to borrow my phone again. Now, it might just be a wisdom choice, and I'm going to say, no, you need to borrow Eric's phone today, right? (laughs) Or I might say, yes, can you use it inside? That's fine okay, that's wise, but if you break it again, I can't become bitter. And I can't go over to this side of the church and say, this person, every time they borrow something and you start to undermine their character, how often shall I forgive my brother or sister when they sin against me? How often do I let them hurt me? Jesus says, there's no number. There's no number. We're not keeping a record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13 says that in in light of the church context. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. The long-term process is every time we recall the offense, the debt, the hurt, we must continue to forgive. We don't forget, but we promise to keep on letting love cover the offense. Because, And I love love the, uh, the reality of Scripture's expectations. Here's here's the truth. If you have been hurt deeply by someone, you probably will never forget it. You, in a single decision, said, I'm going to forgive as God forgives. But in two weeks or two months, when you are tired or you are discouraged or you are reminded of the hurt, what's the temptation? What is our propensity as fallen people? To either become negative or bitter or at that point, even though we have forgiven, to start holding it against that person. So forgiveness is a single event and a long-term process. So it's not seven times. It is 77 times. Or it's 490 times, depending on the wording of that, that, that phrase. Ephesians 5.1 says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I want to make a point here. So in Ephesians 5, new chapter, so we often separate the thoughts. But the problem is the verse starts with therefore. Be imitators. What am I imitating exactly? Just some general idea of godliness? No, if you go back to the previous verse that therefore takes you back to, it says this. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Imitate that. With your brothers and sisters, imitate that. With those who have hurt you, repeatedly, imitate that. Our propensity is to harbor the hurt, to replay the offense in our mind, to make others pay for their offenses, even after the initial event of forgiveness. So what we have to keep doing is recalling, even as God in Christ has forgiven you, you keep forgiving. You imitate Him in that. Because there's something else we must understand and it's connected to that idea. Forgiveness is not forgetting. A lot of people quote two verses in support of to forgive is to forget. They quote Jeremiah 31:34 where it says this, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In Isaiah 43:25, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. These are beautiful truths, but it's not some kind of divine amnesia. It's not like God all of a sudden forgets. This the word promise here And and, and remember, it refers back to covenant. God has made a covenant. He has promised not to treat you according to your sins that he's forgiven. So when those sins come up, it's not like he just doesn't see them. He's saying, I don't remember them anymore the way they were before covenant. They are now covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Or as they entered into covenant in Isaiah and and in Jeremiah... God had made an agreement with them. Therefore, He says, I will not remember your sins. I'm not going to call them up and hold them against you. In the same way, we can do the same. So don't think you are, you're somehow failing in godliness because you keep re- remembering the hurt. We remember the hurts. But what we're doing is we're making a covenant, a promise to say... As, as often as I recall this, I have forgiven you. I am not going to hold this against you. This would take a whole another sermon to develop, but forgiveness does not negate legal obligations. And I think we need to understand that, and I think our children need to hear this. If somebody comes and asks forgiveness of a crime, a sexual offense, of some other sort of criminal offense. Offering forgiveness does not mean that sin remains kept silent. There are still obligations that that person must face. And I also believe that if a person is truly repentant, he or she will be ready and willing to confess their crime to the authorities. So, So, and the reason I'm saying this is because Bullies, bully predators, can use this forgiveness tactic in churches to muzzle and silence crimes. And what we're saying is that is not what this is teaching. Yes, it's true forgiveness, and forgiveness can be offered, a a spirit of forgiveness. We're saying we, we choose to show mercy in this situation, but that does not blanket cover the criminal offense and the debt that still needs to be faced. So let me ask you, in this parable, where do you see yourself? I mean, it's really, I mean, the debt, the amount of the debt is so staggering that you get to the end where this guy has been forgiven this incredible amount, and you see him choking his fellow servants saying, pay everything. And the picture that we're supposed to say is, you're saying you have been forgiven by God of all your sin, right? The wages of sin is death. And you're saying the king has forgiven you of a debt you could never pay. But in the middle of the week, you're choking your fellow servant, your brother or your sister. And you're saying, I'm going to exact justice out of you and I'm going to make you pay. You say, well, I've never choked anybody or thrown anyone in prison. No, we have our own ways of doing that emotionally emotionally and manipulationally, and with intimidation, and relationally, that it, it's as if we are the ones choking and saying, you need to pay everything. And so at the end of the parable, this, if, they, if this is what's happening, an unforgiving heart gives evidence of an unforgiven heart. Romans three twenty-three to 24 for the wages of sin is death, this is the debt you owe for being a sinner, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you received that? Have you been forgiven? Okay, then, let me ask you. Does the proof of that show up in all your other relationships? Or does the proof show up that this is actually a hollow profession, a superficial profession, and in your other relationships you're actually the unmerciful servant? In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I think the simplest way to just bring this to a conclusion is this. Is there anyone, and you're going to have to fill in the blank. I've already asked myself this question throughout the week. Is there anyone to whom you would withhold forgiveness if they asked you for a very real hurt they have done? Is there someone where where within your heart, maybe hidden, maybe even hidden from those who are the closest with you, that if you could exact punishment and not be found out, you would do that? This parable is exposing this truth. A heart that is unwilling to forgive is most likely a heart that has not been touched by forgiveness. This morning, by God's grace, we can eat in remembrance the bread that symbolizes the broken body of Christ, our means of forgiveness, and by grace we can drink the cup that symbolizes atoning blood rather than a cup filled with the divine fury of God's wrath because Christ emptied the cup. And He has... This is the beautiful thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness leads then towards reconciliation. And we have been reconciled to God. Jesus says this in Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant. This is when he was introducing this ordinance of communion. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Listen to what God does to the person who turns and trusts. Acts 10:43: "To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Have you been the recipient of God's mercy? Can you then offer that to those who have hurt you? Is there a, is there a spirit of willingness to grant forgiveness? Let's pray.